Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. It's going to be a dark one today because we're we're too into one of the classics in 2022. I said I was going to cover more of the well-known serial killers because I, I think I said this before. Initially, I was kind of shying away from them because they've been done many, many times. But everyone was like, Simon, give us your take on it. I mean, not my take, me and my writer's take on uh, on them. So today, Ed Gein. I, uh, I made a video about Ed Gein a while ago. And if I remember correctly, he didn't actually kill that many people he was just like into dead bodies like uh he'd cut them up and he'd steal them from the cemetery and stuff like that so and i always found that i mean yeah it's disgusting and it's weird and all of that but i find that a lot easier to stomach than the actual murder although i'm pretty sure he also murdered people as well so that's that's great oh that's not great Uh, this is an episode of the Casual Criminalist. Welcome. Uh, David actually wrote this one. Ed Gein, the Butcher of Plainfield. Thank you, David. I'm going to read it. Not read it before. Uh, that's what we do here. It's a cold read. And then Jen, wonderful video editor, is going to add some music and some images and some video and all of that beautiful stuff if you decide to uh, watch this show on YouTube. Also, of course, available as a podcast if you fancy it on the go. So there's that as well. Uh, brilliant. Let's just uh, crack on with it, shall we? It's the morning of November the 16th, 1957. The tiny hamlet of Plainfield, Wisconsin, has a population of just over 680 people. It would be a slight overstatement to even call the place a town. The landscape around Plainfield is flat and lightly forested, cut only by farms that are situated miles apart. Further into Plainfield are the agrarian community's most impressive structures, a smattering of three-story brick buildings constructed in the late 1800s, a couple more added in the 1920s. The hamlet's main street is composed of shops catering to the basic essentials of the surrounding farming community, various grocery stores selling fresh produce and canned goods, a candy shop, a hardware store, a barber shop, and a post office. Is 608 people is not that many. I'm kind of amazed that there's an... is Is that enough? people to sustain like i guess people have to have their haircuts but isn't that when you isn't that the sort of thing you go to the nearest town for although this is america where is this wisconsin i don't know anything about wisconsin i think i've been have i been to wisconsin maybe i feel like i've been to wisconsin no wait doesn't matter not important um what i wanted to say is like isn't generally just go across the nearest town but then i forget america's really big so it's like yeah i gotta go get my haircuts it's a three-hour drive to the nearest town ain't it son <laughs> i don't know why i did that in a southern voice i know it's it's just my default american accent <laughs> which i feel bad about um not because it's a bad accent just because it's the only one i i do other than like california sarcastic stoner surfer bro uh badly i might add don't think i'm good at these i'm not saying that uh, what are we talking about? Wisconsin. I'm pretty sure it's in the north. More unusual items like fitted clothing, luxury furniture, or modern electronics have to be ordered by catalog and shipped in. Ah, the past was the worst. Ultimately, the hamlet is, associ- is isolated and unremarkable, and it would have remained so if the day's events had not come to pass. An atmosphere of late autumn gloom has descended upon Plainfield. Three inches of snow covered the ground. The sky was grey, hazy, and depressing. There was a light mist and a wet drizzle in the air, vaguely threatening a storm. Plainfield was almost deserted. Most of the men were gone. Today was the first day of deer season, government-mandated time of year where the deer population is culled by thousands of hunters across the state with free reign to stalk, kill, and butcher as many of the creatures that they can carry. <laughs> it's like a hunting buffet! That's pretty great. Deer's like, I'm not the biggest fan of deer meat, but it is, it's not bad. Like, I like uh, venison sausages, for example. Um... But if it's free, 
That's pretty great. And I bet a deer lasts you a really long time. Is it Joe Rogan? Is he the one who famously... What does he eat? He eats something famously. Is it deer that he hunts with like a crossbow? <laughs> it's like, shit, dude. It's like, yeah, but you're rich. Why wouldn't you just buy it in a store? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It brings me back to nature. All right, man. I just like go to Tesco. <laughs> The men have all eagerly marched off into the woods. In total, in the year of 1957, over 40,000 deer would be slaughtered. In a single year? <laughs> Holy shit, it is a cull. At 8am on the morning of November the 16th, Ed Gein finished eating breakfast in the festering, stinking hellhole of a farmhouse. He was oblivious to the overpowering stench that would have caused a normal post person to choke and gasp for air. Despite the inclement weather, Gein donned a summer jacket and plopped a deer hunting cap onto his balding head. Gein stood at 5 foot 7 inches tall or 170 centimeters with a slight frame no more than 140 pounds or just over 60 kilograms. His large bulbous forehead, prominent cheekbones and square jaw shaped like a windowsill displayed his descent from the German settlers who populated the region in droves the century prior. Ed Gein had slightly prominent and dopey looking ears, the tops of which bent outwards. His face bore a hint of stubble, but he was otherwise clean-shaven. Gein had a vague, distant, daydreaming expression that was typically on his face, which led most of the people who knew him to think that he was a bit mentally slow. His reputation around Plainfield was that of a shy, strange little man who did odd jobs for his neighbors, even babysat children. They thought he was fairly dependable and ultimately harmless, that he wouldn't hurt a fly. Leaving the corpses and the vermin-infested filth of his house behind, Gein climbed into his maroon 1949 Ford sedan and drove into Plainfield. If you live in somewhere that stinks, do you do you lose the smell of it after a while? Because I know, like, I, re I remember I went on a really long cycling trip with my friends, and we didn't, you know, we were just camping out and just on a really long trip, and we didn't bathe for, like, ten days because we were just, like, sleeping rough. We did the, uh, it's called John O'Groats to Land's End in the UK, where you cycle from one end of the country to the other. And uh, we absolutely stank. Like, I'm 100% sure of it. And yet, it was like, no, I don't, I don't smell too bad. I don't smell that bad at all. Whereas, absolutely, I know that I stank like an absolute monster. So, I guess you just get used to it. Which is, uh, yeah, it's like, well, don't have guests around. <laughs> it's like, you know when you go to someone's house and it's like, what's that smell? I mean, you don't say that, but you do wonder. And it's like, they just don't notice. I remember my parents, uh, a rat died like um somewhere in their walls or under their floor or something and they couldn't get to it and for like a month they were saying it stank and i remember i came to visit and i was like what's that smell it smells horrible and they're like oh yeah we forget there's a dead rat where we can't get to we're just having to wait for it to rot it out and i'm like that is horrible <laughs> Sorry, tangent's over. He stopped off at a gas station and filled the can with kerosene. He then drove to the east end of Plainfield and parked a fair distance away from Warden's hardware store. He grabbed a glass jug and headed inside. Working the till was Bernice Warden, a tough-talking, bespectacled woman of 58 who had an eye for business and a love of fishing. Usually, she would be assisted in the store by her son, Frank, who also acted as the local sheriff, but he was off hunting with the rest of the men. Does a town of 680 people have a sheriff? That's so weird. But Ed Gein already knew that because he had asked Frank if he planned to go hunting when Frank had seen him skulking around Warden's hardware the day before. Bernice looked up to see Gein enter her shop and she groaned inwardly in annoyance. Bernice disliked Gein. They had known each other for 40 years. Bernice thought he was weird. Creepy. Bit of an idiot. <laughs> I have a feeling I know what's going to happen to Bernice. <laughs> Ed's going to be like, what's up, Bernice? Your time has come.
Only a few weeks earlier. <laughs> that wasn't very sensitive, was it, Simon? <laughs> It's a horrible serial killer we're talking about. Only a few weeks later, Gein had bizarrely asked Bernice if she would like to, quote, try out the floor of the new roller skating rink that had been opened in Plainfield. Plainfield, what is up? You've got 680 people. You've got all this stuff. Gein claimed he had asked her out there as a joke, but it was not the first time he had done so. Gein had also asked her to go dancing and to a movie. Gein, 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 Gein. This is classic. But you're an old man. This is the sort of thing. It's like teenagers do it. It's like, yeah, would you like to go, you know, should we go out sometime? And uh, it's like, no, why would I go out with you? It's like, well, I was just joking. It was just a joke. Why would I want to go out with you? I was just... <laughs> uh, Gein approached the counter and asked to purchase some antifreeze, which Bernie's dutifully poured from a steel barrel, barrel into his glass jug. Ah, the past. Where we used to not have plastics and care about the environment. I mean, not we didn't care about the environment. It's just, I mean... Why can't we go back to this? This seems like a much more environment. Although then I went to the store once and they were doing this thing where they dispense like you can buy like hand soaps and you bring your own jug. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'll definitely bring my own jug. And then I discovered it's more expensive than just buying it in the bloody plastic thing. And I'm like, well, guys, I'll just have it in the plastic thing, won't I? You, you, you have to at least not financially disincentivize me from doing the right thing. Bernice handed him the jug and wrote up a receipt. Gein thanked her and left. Moments later, Gein re-entered the store and asked Bernice to show him one of the Merlin 22 caliber rifles on the gun rack that lined the wall. Gein gently took the rifle from Bernice and examined it. Bernice meanwhile turned away from Gein to look out the window. She saw a new red Chevy truck belonging to her daughter's husband and commented haughtily that she did not approve of Chevrolet vehicles. Okay, interesting bit of detail there. Gein stealthily withdrew a 22 caliber shell from his jacket pocket, placed it in the rifle, and shot Bernie Swarton in the head. Jesus. That escalated quickly. She dropped down and fell from Gein's sight behind the counter. He peered over it and saw Bernice lying there dead. Gein locked the door front door of the hardware store to delay people from noticing Bernice's disappearance. Indeed, most people that day would assume Bernice had gone hunting. I feel like is it a 22s of it? I used to shoot 22s. It's a very small caliber thing. I guess like uh, oh, in fact, I think I brought this up before, and someone mentioned um, one of the things about this weapon, the, the 22 or something, is a close. Re- this is a really grim detail. I, I can't remember why. It was someone in the comments, so I don't know if this is true or not. But one thing about the 22 is you shoot someone, and uh, instead of you know with a if it was a higher caliber weapon or whatever sometimes it can like you know go through the side of the head and then come out and it's like some people survive getting shot at shot in the head incredibly apparently with a 22 it's got enough power to enter but it can't exit so it kind of bounces around in your brain and scrambles your eggs and i'm like that is that is yeah okay Brilliant. You're really helping the criminals out. <laughs> Simon, good job. Gein also removed the cash register in order to make people think it was a robbery gone wrong. Thereafter, Gein gripped the body, dragged it out back of the store, leaving a trail of blood to the warden hardware delivery truck. He loaded the body on board and drove away. 40 minutes, dude. <laughs> They're going to be like, oh, I guess she went hunting. What's this trail of blood? Ah, I don't know. Probably nothing. Let's just wash it off real quick. 40 minutes later, back at his farm, Gein hanged Vinnie Warden's body from a meat hook in his barn on his knees in the snow. After disposing of the delivery truck, Gein retrieved his Ford sedan from Plainfield and drove it back home. At 3 p.m. later that day, Elmo Uik paid Gein a visit at his farm. Elmo found Gein out front, bizarrely changing his winter tires to the normal summer ones. Brushing that aside, Elmo apologized to Ed for shooting a deer on Gein's property that day. Ed did not approve of people hunting on his land, but Gein did not seem to mind and told Elmo to forget about it. Elmo tried to make chit-chat with Gein for a bit, but as usual with the strange shy man, it went nowhere. 
And after a while, Elmo left. Elmo, why did you go? <laughs> You're going to go see someone who you d- who's obviously not a very good conversationalist and is probably not going to do anything about, you know, you shooting a deer on his land. Just be like, oh no, I shot on it. Uh, uh, just, just be like, forget about it. Just grab that deer, get in your truck and go home. Sometimes it's best not to admit to your crimes. Shortly afterward, Ed Gein entered his barn and decapitated Bernice Warden's corpse. He proceeded to cut open the body from the top to the sternum near the collarbone down to the mons veneris, the soft flesh just above the pubic bone. Using circular incisions, Ed Gein then removed the body's genitalia and rectum, which he later transported along with the head to his house. Gein drained the remaining blood from the body and washed the insides clean with water. He then returned the body to the meat hook. Gein, what are you up to? You can see why they call him a butcher. It's like... It just... Why? What's up? At 5 p.m., Frank Warden had returned to Plainfield after a day's hunting when the owner of the local gas station informed him that Warden Hardware had been closed all day with the door locked but the lights oddly left on and there was no sign of his mother, Bernice. Frank headed over there to see what was going on. Indeed, the door was locked. Quickly going home to get the spare key, Frank returned to the hardware store and stepped inside. What greeted him was blood lots of blood a slug trail of it headed out the back door frank warden called his fellow sheriffs who were in watoma watoma 15 miles away and told them what had happened when they arrived frank warden said he's done something to her when the sheriffs asked what frank meant the man snarled eddie Gein. frank then produced the sales receipt that bernie's had written for antifreeze that morning <laughs> they registered it was ed Gein. Ah! why <laughs> It's like you want to get caught. This is terrible. Meanwhile, teenager Bob Hill and his sister Darlene walked up to the road to Ed Gein's farm. Ed, guys, go police. No police. You just want to let, let's go. Let's go. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. They, these guys don't have anything to do. They, I assume that they'd heard about this. and They were like, let's go get Ed Gein. Um, but that's a different situation. My bad. Gein exited his house and met them outside with his hands covered in blood. Bob explained that his car had broken down in their driveway and asked Ed for a lifted Plainfield so he could buy a new car battery. Ed said yes and told Bob and Darlene to wait while he washed the blood off his hands. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is like super suspicious. And in retrospect, you'd be like, oh my God. But if I went to someone's house, like in the in a farming place, and I was like, yo, my car's broken down. Can you help me? I would just assume that they're butchering or I don't know, whatever. I would definitely not assume they've killed someone. And what are you going to do? Be like, did you kill someone? Because either that ends with them killing you or uh, them just being like, nah, <laughs> definitely not. Just butchering. Keen explained he had been dressing a deer, hardly unusual given it was the first day of deer season. What Bubble Hill didn't know is that Ed Gein was known by some of the older men in the community for never hunting deer. Ed Gein drove the Hill siblings into Plainfield, where they picked up the battery. Thereafter, Gein helped Bob install it and get the car running at the Hill's house, which sat next to their family-run grocery store. Because it was getting late, Bob's mother, Irene, invited Gein to stay for dinner. Gein accepted and cheerfully munched down a meal of pork chops, potatoes, macaroni and cheese, and pickles with coffee and cookies for dessert. Is this an American thing, you ask? Pork chops with macaroni and cheese. <laughs> that is a very strange... Is that a normal combination, Americans? Macaroni and cheese is a dish in itself. Right? You have that. That's what's dinner. Macaroni and cheese. Not... And then it's like, yeah, pork chops as well. It's not a side. Is it? At 7pm, Jim Vroman, Irene Hill's son-in-law, burst through the door and said the Bernice Warden had gone missing and there was blood all over the hardware store. Ed Gein's only comment was, 
Must have been somebody pretty cold-blooded. <laughs> he probably didn't say it like that. Bob Hill, eager to head into Plainfield and join the line of Gorkers, asked Gein if he would drive him. Ed Gein, assuming he was not a suspect, agreed to do this. As Gein said his goodbyes, Irene headed to the nearby family grocery store to relieve her husband and sent him home for his dinner while she watched the store. Moments later, she was confronted by two state troopers. They said they were looking for Ed Gein. Irene replied that he was probably just about to pull out of her driveway, unless he'd already left. The two men headed around the house and found Ed, and Ed Gein and Bob Hill still in the driveway. Warming up the engine before taking off, the officers knocked on Ed Gein's window and asked him to follow them to a squad car. Well, they had one or two questions. Sitting in the car with Gein in the back seat, the officer asked Gein about his movements that day. When the officer pointed out a few contradictions in his story, Ed Gein blurted out, Somebody framed me! Oh, Ed, what are you up to? What you should blurt out is like, Where is my lawyer? Framed you for what? The officer asked. Mrs. Warden. She's dead, ain't she? Gein replied. How do you know she's dead? The officer shot back. I heard tell of it. Gein answered vaguely. At that point, nobody in the public knew that Bernice Warden was dead, and the police couldn't be sure of it themselves, although a lot of blood was found at the scene. Ed Gein was promptly arrested for the robbery of the hardware store and under suspicion for the kidnapping or the murder of Bernice Warden. Oh, Ed, you're a terrible criminal. This is one of these ones where if this was just a regular murder and we don't have everything that comes later and everything they discover at his, you know, farm of horrors, this would just go down as like a random murder by someone who was just a really incompetent criminal. But as you will see, there is a reason why we know the name Ed Gein. At 8 p.m., Sheriff Ars Arthur Schley and Captain Oh my Show Poster Show Poster arrived at Ed Gein's farm in you can see this was a like German place, can't you? In these surnames. Arrived at Ed Gein's farm in search of Bernice Warden. The farmhouse and its connecting barn were cloaked in total darkness. Armed with flashlights, the men tried all of the doors which were locked, except for the door to the barn. As they made their way inside, the men fumbled through the darkness in order to find a source of light or a way into the house. It was there, in the darkness, that Arthur Schley bumped into the hanging, decapitated, eviscerated, exsanguinated, and mutilated corpse of Bernice Warden. At first, Schley couldn't believe his eyes, thinking he was staring at the carcass of some sort of animal. Then, in total shock, he ran out of the barn, sank to his knees in the snow, and was violently sick. He was soon joined by captain show oh my good lord show up horster show up horster who began retching beside him i've never seen anything that's made me throw up or smell i mean i guess i've smelled a few things where i've been like <laughs> but yeah i mean i hope that i never do because damn meet ed Gein's mother Augusta Wilhelmina Lerker was born on the 21st of July, 1878. Her parents were German immigrants who had settled in La Crosse, Wisconsin in 1870. Augusta was raised in a devout Lutheran household with rules that were strictly enforced by frequent and painful corporal punishments administered by her father, Friedrich. Far from alienating Augusta from her parents, the oppressive and abusive upbringing forged her in her father's image. She was just as domineering, inflexible, humorless, austere, and fanatically religious as her father. <laughs> she sounds fun. Uh, if not more so, oh my god, she was murdered. Simon, have some respect. Christ. If not more so, Augusta embodied the notion of Protestant work ethic. Life should be hard work, filled with self-denial, hostility to all things sexual, and a rigid adherence to old-world values. Augusta seems to have possessed little self-doubt in her own beliefs, and betrayed no fear or humility when dealing with the people she despised. And by God, there were a lot of them. Oh wait, this is her mum! Yeah, we can make fun of her mum. She wasn't murdered horribly. 
I mean, maybe she was. That would be a hell of a coincidence. As the United States rapidly industrialized in the late 19th century, one sleepy agrarian community saw an influx of travelers, traders, new goods and technologies, and the arrival of new ideas. Augusta hated modernity with a passion. She saw it as the encroachment of immoral satanic decadence and a straying from the godly Christian path which had prevailed since time immemorial. <laughs> All right, chill out. Time immemorial. It's only been a few thousand years, a couple of thousand years. So, uh, what are you talking about? Augustus saw this moral decay in pretty much everyone she met. Men she largely viewed as weak, self-indulgent, easily tempted buffoons. But she hated women even more. Augusta regarded women, with very few exceptions, as whores, temptresses, and unclean filth, the likes of which had tempted Adam to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, dooming humanity to a life of sin and suffering. Oh... Yeah, surprise, surprise, she's super into the Old Testament. And the Old Testament gets pretty crazy. <laughs> then Augusta practiced a toxic combination of profound misogyny and contemptuous misandry. Big brain word, what is misandry? <laughs> and if anything about you did not meet a very narrow, doctrinaire view of what was acceptable behavior, she'd be outraged and castigate you as a monster and a blight on the human race. Oh my god, can you imagine her in the in the 21st century? <laughs> be like you'll be like what the fuck is going on i guess no we didn't go back to the pure good old old testament times did we what the fuck is this instagram why is everyone half naked why a yoga pants a thing as she matured into a young woman augusta laker did not have an abundance of suitors shocking <laughs> Some men found her unsmiling attitude and sharp, insulting tongue quite off-putting. More shy men were quickly intimidated by her force of character. The more sprightly and virile of men may have shown Augusta some attention, but she quickly rebuffed them in the most vicious manner possible, given her own revulsion towards sex. In terms of physical appearance, sure, her eyes were too widely spaced apart and she wasn't Aphrodite-made flesh, but she was solidly built curvy and buxom, perfectly decent qualities for a 19th century wife. But what was exceedingly hideous was Augusta's perennial bad attitude and how she treated people. Before Augusta was even 16 years old, she had gained a reputation as a real battle axe and did not particularly enthrall any of the young men in Lacrosse County. Well, at some point she finds someone because she's Ed Gein's mum. Most did their best to avoid her since it would put them at risk of a puritanical hectoring and blistering disapproval. But in 1897, when Augusta was 19 years old, she met her future husband. George Gein was 24 years old and had recently arrived in Lacrosse. He had been bouncing from job to job, working as an insurance salesman, a carpenter, a tanner, a power plant worker, and a lowly grunt on the railway roads. His inability to find a bit of stability in his life or to find a workplace where his efforts were appreciated led George to have exceedingly low self-esteem oh my god dude you're gonna get trampled all over by augusta uh he repaired his broken spirit in the saloon with copious amounts of whiskey you'd hardly think that george gein would be the sort of man who would attract augusta later but george presented well she liked that he was strong she liked that he was quiet she liked that he did what he was told and above all she liked that he was a practicing lutheran i don't even know what a lutheran is it's some sort of christian thing what do lutherans believe largest oh it's protestant so it's a large branch of protestantism that identifies with the theology of martin luther oh he's the the 95 theses guy isn't he um okay boring 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 something western christianity reformation blah 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 no one cares okay moving on 
Meanwhile, George had managed to mask his alcoholism during their courtship. For George's part, he was attracted to Augusta's personality. <laughs> really? Someone was attracted to her personality? Wow. Which he interpreted as her being a strong, independent woman, rather than the meddlesome, angry, judgmental, and verbally abusive banshee that the young men of La Crosse County dismissed her as. Augusta's force of character, her decisiveness, her practical intelligence, and her large family espousing old-world Christian values also offered George the stability that his life had been lacking. Yeah, and don't, 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 don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that a strong, independent woman is a bad thing. It's a good thing. Like a weak, non-independent woman is... Well, that's not like Simon. You're getting too way way too judgmental. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying I don't know everything we've read about this woman. She sounds horrible. That's all I'm saying. And yes, she's strong and independent, but she also seems horrible and a crazy religiousness. George and Augusta were married on the 4th of December, 1899, and then the other shoe dropped. It immediately became clear that George Gein was a drunk and couldn't hold down a job. Augusta responded to this by becoming tyrannical and verbally abusive. I'm sure it was. <laughs> I mean, I'm not like, it, was, it probably wasn't just his alcoholism that caused her to become tyrannical and verbally abusive, was it? Treating her husband as worse than vermin, George in turn responded to this by diving deeper into the bottle. Occasionally, he'd come home drunk and beat Augusta when she started in on him. Augusta would start screaming that she wished he was dead. Such wishes also animated Augusta's nightly prayers, which she recited out loud in front of her husband. When they were not engaged in a full-blown domestic incident, a heavy silence oppressed the Gein household, with the newlyweds refusing to say a civil word to each other. Oh my god, this marriage did not start well, but at some point you have a kid. Oh my god. I'm gonna say that kid's gonna get really fucked up. <laughs> it's Ed Gein. God. <laughs> don't, don't, if, don't, don't have kids. Don't, don't have kids if this is your situation. Get a divorce before you have kids, please. The kid is not gonna fix it, I promise you. When it came to Augusta's Christian duty of procreation, she did not shy away from it despite her seething hatred for her husband. But Augusta loathed sex and found the act disgusting. She did it purely to conceive a child. To her, any idea of having sex for pleasure was the language of whores, and it evidently did not often occur to her that sex could also be an expression of love. Not that she loved her husband anyway. After three years of marriage and quite infrequent bouts of stale, emotionless sex, Henry Gein, Ed's older brother, was dragged kicking and screaming into the world. Four years later, on August 27, 1906, Ed Gein himself was born. Augusta had hoped and prayed that her second child would be a girl and felt embittered that she'd given birth to another son. I don't like this. I don't like this attitude. Like, I've got two kids. First one was a girl, second one's a boy. Uh, I, at first I was like, I'd really like to have a son. I don't know, it was a weird, I guess just a weird male dude thing. But I also know women who are like, yeah, I'd really like to have a daughter. I don't know. I never went fishing with my, I did go fishing with my dad, but not like as a hobby. But I imagine like in my like idealized version of family life, it's like, come on boy, let's go fishing. Ha 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 ha. Let's do some manly stuff, which sounds so out of place in the 21st century. But you know, this stupid like shit you've seen in movies for decades. As soon as I had my daughter, I was like, I just don't care anymore. This is so sweet. And I was just like, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter to me one bit. And to the idea of being bitter about it, like, because you didn't have a daughter or you didn't have whatever gender you wanted, just seems a bit insane to me. It's like, okay. Now she was doomed to live in a household filled with dull-minded, lumbering, coarse, and carnally barbaric men. Yo, it's like 1906. Aren't people having like 17 children? Come on. She had been deprived of the opportunity to have a daughter and to mold her in her own image. Uh, in this case, uh, good. In defiant contrast to the airheaded, promiscuous, and hypocritical housewives that she saw in La Crosse. Needless to say, after Edgeen's birth, any physical interaction between Augusta and George 
promptly ceased. Now, just before we continue with today's episode, a quick word from today's fantastic sponsors. First up, Babbel. Thank you, Babbel. Whether it's saving more and spending less, getting organized or losing weight, there's a lot of worthwhile goals that you can set yourself this year. And, you know, forget all that stuff. Don't focus on spending less. Don't focus on any of that. Maybe it's learning a new language. Yes, that's a good one. And Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Not only is learning a new language a fun and engaging new hobby, you can use it for a whole lot of stuff. Traveling, I don't know, I live in a country where uh, the language is not English. So I know the value of learning a second language. And also if you just travel to places, it's nice to be able to say like, you know, je voudrais croissant. As I would like a croissant in French, you're welcome. The whole Babbel process is addictively fun, fast and easy. Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons for real-world use. No nonsense about where's the library. More like where's the pub, yes? 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. And unlike other apps which use AI to make... I've used other apps and it's like, oh, that sentence doesn't really make any sense, but I guess it's useful for helping me learn. Whereas no, Babbel is put together by experts, so the sentences make sense and are useful. For example, where is the pub? With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. Brilliant! Look, you can also access podcasts, games, videos, stories, even live classes, and... 20-day money-back guarantee. So what have you got to lose? Go to Babbel.com and you'll get a three-month Babbel subscription and an additional three months for free. So six months, basically, for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use the code CASUAL. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Code CASUAL. Babbel. Language for life. Also, another big thank you to today's second sponsor, Bombas. Bombas's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. So not only do you feel super comfortable, you also feel comfortable in your soul. That's a win win. Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be clothes that you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feeling. How do we still have tags in clothes? I mean, other than Bombas clothes. How is that a thing? Tags, is a, you always end up cutting them out, and then they've got that weird little scratchy thing left in there, or you end up tearing it out, and then you end up some, I'd torn out the other day. Obviously not of a Bombas clothes, because they don't have tags out of like a, a, a jumper that I bought. And now there's a hole in the back of the jumper. And I'm like, why, why didn't I cut it out? And then I'm like, because of the scratchy thing. Bombas, they're, they're changing the world. It's amazing. There's a pair of Bombas socks for everything you do. They come in tons of options, like comfy performance styles for every sport and activity that keeps you moving. Their t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight. So they hang just right. Their underwear has a barely feel there. It's got second skin support. So you forget it's there. In a good way. You're not like, oh my god, am I commando? No, you're just wearing Bombas. Brilliant. Oh, and there's and and also they donate for every item you buy. Brilliant. Look, go to Bombas. B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash casual to get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-S dot com slash casual for 20% off bombass.com slash casual and now back to today's show lusting after mummy dearest 
Oh my, it's getting all eatable. In 1909, George Gein set himself up with a small grocery store. Being self-employed had at least one benefit. You didn't have a boss who could fire you for being drunk. <laughs> it's like, yeah, one of those things, it's like, my, my job is like, I could definitely have a beer with lunch and then come back and record some videos. Maybe that would even be more of a laugh. I don't, because it's a dangerous path. And also, it's like, I, I would fire myself if I was drunk at work. Nevertheless, Augusta quickly established dominance over the business. By 1911, Augusta was listed in the town's registry as the store's owner, with George Milley being listed as clerk. Meanwhile, with her father being a lost cause, Augusta established a domestic tyranny over her sons. Her attentions in particular fell upon young Ed, for whom his mother cultivated a particularly nuanced system of abuse. Augusta would go out of her way to make Ed feel utterly worthless. But at the same time, she didn't reject him outright, making Ed even more dependent on her. For example, when Ed was seven years old, Augusta sent him to the bakery with some money to buy a loaf of bread. The young lad somehow lost the coins during his walk to the bakery. Ed burst into tears, terrified of what his mother might say. When he arrived home and told Augusta what had happened, she did not screech and hurl insults as she might have done to her husband. Instead, she looked at her son with contempt and disgust and quietly said, "'You dreadful child.' Only a mother could love you. Oh my god. This is like the worst. It's like you're purposefully you're purposefully screwing him up. This is why you're a horrible person. And and the more I learn about you, the more I'm like, this is totally okay. Like at first I was like, oh, you know, she's a strong it's like, no, 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 she's a piece of shit. <laughs> I don't know why I was trying to defend her. It's unnecessary. She's a horrible person. F her. She made Ed Gein, basically. I mean Ed Gein made Ed Gein, but also his mum made Ed Gein. This ugly treatment was far less flagrant than the violent maternal abuse of Andre Chikatilo or Pedro Lopez. As such, it bred a different species of monster. It didn't hate his mother. He worshipped her. In Ed's eyes, she was the pinnacle of virtue, an alpha female, a lady boss who didn't take no guff, who had no time for thoughts of sex or sentimentality. She worked tirelessly, spoke her mind, acted as a moral arbiter for all of humanity, and shielded Ed from the evils and corrupting ideals of the world. Mm-hmm. All right, Ed. Get a little bit of a twisted view there, aren't you, mate? By 1913, Augusta had decided that she was fed up with the town of La Crosse and all its sinful manifestations of corruption. You live in a country farming town in the middle of nowhere. Where on earth are you going to go where they are more, uh, where they are less sinful? I, really? She wished for a more isolated life in the countryside. <laughs> you live in a village where there's, in, far away from a village... Where there's 680 people. She moved the Gein family first to the farming community of Camp Douglas, and then in 1914 to the 155-acre farm near Plainfields. Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm I'm getting my places all mixed up today. Lacrosse isn't the small place. Plainfields is the small place where they moved to. Get it together, fact boy. Come on, everyone at home's like Simon. Do you not even keep up with the story? Can you not? You're reading it. It's right in front of you. How do you not follow? <laughs> my brain is just too small. Uh, where Bernice Warden's body was found hanging from a meter 43 years later. In keeping with the pattern that evolved during her marriage, the land deed to the farm was made out in Augusta's name. The house itself, Augusta kept immaculately clean. Cleanliness was next to godliness after all. Well, that obviously didn't rub off on her son, did it? Augusta also ensured that it was well furnished and decorated. Such was the museum-tier organization of knickknacks, throw rugs, and furniture that Augusta's husband and two sons had to tiptoe around the house and were extremely hesitant to sit on the furniture, lest Augusta shouted them for making it dirty. What's the point of furniture if you're not going to sit on it? This is one of those things you've just got to accept. It's like you buy a nice new piece of furniture, and it's just like, yo, you got to be okay that it's going to get pretty fucked up. I really struggle with this. Like, so you get a nice car, the car's in such great condition, 
and then you're like you just got to be okay with the fact that it's going to get a little bit f***ed up it's going to get a little bit dinged you're going to like trape some mud in there kids going to throw up on the back seat and you're like it was so nice and now it's horrible i take my car i get it really nicely clean like twice a year and i was like at the end of the six months it's like what the f*** is happening in here you just feel horrible and then you get the car cleaned and you're like oh my god it's like it's new <laughs> it's so nice i mean it still gets the dings and stuff I bumped, I bumped into my mate's car the other day. It was really embarrassing. I was like uh, reversing. And it's got all these, you know, cameras and beep, 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 beep systems. And I'm like, nah, I can make that. I can make that. The camera's just being overly generous. Bash! Whack it into my friend's car. And we're in a, we're in a full car park and my friend's not there. And there's other people around. And they're like, uh, you just bumped that car. And I'm like, you aren't going to believe this, are you? But that's my mate's car. <coughs> So I'm just going to leave. And they're like, I saw nothing. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, that's not what I'm asking for. It was was my friend's car. And I wrote him later. And he's like, oh, mate, I didn't even notice. My car's such a piece of crap. And I'm like, okay. Uh." Oh, anyway, that was uncomfortable. I was like, I'm not trying to drive off. It was literally the car park with, there were like many cars. And I just happened to hit my friends who was parked on the other side of the, you know, where you've got like two things. Yeah, stupid. As such, Augustus' husband George tended to spend as much time as possible out of the house. By this time, George had lapsed into a perpetually sullen silence, no longer arguing back when subjected to one of Augustus' frequent verbal harangues. His alcoholism evolved from loud, violent outbursts of anger at his wife to just being a chronic day-long affair of keeping himself comfortably numb. George rarely took his frustrations out on his kids, and it wasn't long before they were old enough to fight back. Good. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Augusta despised the people of Plainfield. Wherever you go, there you are. And they returned the favor. Augusta spent the overwhelming majority of her time on the farm, and the Gein family rarely entertained visitors. She also kept her two boys as isolated as possible, kept firmly under her wing. The only exception to this is when they had to attend school. Henry seemed to fare better at school than Ed, gradually making friends and contacts in Plainfield, which he kept secret from his mother. Ed, on the other hand, was a shy, awkward, browbeaten boy and did not make friends easily. He was occasionally subjected to bullying, but nothing in the extreme. When Ed did make a new friend, he'd excitedly come home and tell his mother about it, and she'd immediately launch into a diatribe about how the friend's family were a bunch of reprobates before forbidding Ed from associating with the other child. This is so sad. Kids just want to make friends. I see this right now. My older daughter is like two and a bit. She's like, we go to the park and there's like so many other children. And she's like, small girl, 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 boy, boy, play. And she she has a few words. And she like plays with them. And we want to send her to like preschool and like have her make friends and stuff. But it's like every, like they're closing down half the time. They're half open. Then there's like, oh, someone in the class had COVID. So we're canceling it. And it's like, it's just a total nightmare. And it's so sad because she's so friendly. She will just walk down the street and grab people's hands. Like other kids should be like, play. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's so sad, but also so sweet. As a result, Ed deliberately avoided any association with his classmates and buried himself in the world of books. He was noted at school for being quite an avid reader, although this did not mean he was highly intelligent. When he was later given an IQ test by a lunatic asylum, his scores were average. Still, books were preferable to his father's form of escapism, namely crippling amounts of alcohol. When Ed Gein finished his education in 1922 at the age of 16, he immediately began working full-time at the Gein family farm. His life became even more isolated, his only strong human connection being his ghastly, domineering mother. Not that Ed minded. He loved his mother to bits. But <laughs> you know how she said, you're, a, you're a, the son only a mother could love. You're the mother only a son could love, you witch. 
but you can understand this wasn't exactly ideal for his mental health madness was sprouting on the family farm as both ed and henry reached sexual maturity augusta began harping on about the subject of the immorality of women quite frankly augusta did not think a single woman in plainfield was pure or upright enough to consort with her boys and she thought it would be better if both henry and ed remained celibate <laughs> holy shit. if there is one thing i've learned in my short life never repress anything Henry conducted the odd liaison with local women in secret. Ed stayed a virgin. But the idea of either son forming a deep, meaningful, and lasting relationship with another woman was out of the question. Both of them remained bachelors. I have to say, it's quite amazing how Henry ended up being relatively normal and able to make friends and girlfriends and stuff, uh, considering how intensely messed up this upbringing is. It's like, it's a really nice example. Nice example uh, is the wrong word to use. It's a... A uh, clarifying example of how, you know, it's nature plus nurture. Like Ed Gein, these guys similar brought up. Although I think they, we were saying that Har- Henry, Harry, Henry got a bit of a better treatment from Augusta. But it's kind of like it's genetics and environment, right, that make a person. Like Ed Gein obviously seems a bit more predisposed to this than Henry. Augusta's removal of any hope in Ed for any prospect of intimate or sexual contact, the soft, comforting touch of a woman, along with her harsh disapproval of anything as innocent as masturbation, profoundly damaged Ed Ed sexually and psychologically. He spent his days taking orders from his foul-tempered and emotionally abusive mother. He wasn't allowed to connect with any women, and he wasn't allowed to masturbate. Try doing that to any 16-year-old boy and see how that works out. Yeah, look, I've been a 16-year-old boy. Naturally, Ed did retain his sexuality, he did fantasize, and he did masturbate. But it was extremely furtive and came along with a massive spoonful of self-hatred. Ed saw himself as a bestial male unable to control his base impulses. He seemed to take on board his mother's sermons that most women were soiled, evil, and repugnant figures. Not to be flippant, but as far as Ed was concerned, women's vaginas might as well have come with sharp fangs. As such, Ed's attraction seemed to grow towards his own mother and women who resembled his mother, uh, textbook Oedipal stuff. And given that women like Augusta were in short supply, there's no question where Ed's desires were directed. Oh my dude. Some have speculated that Ed and Augusta even developed an incestuous relationship, but given Augusta's attitude towards sex, this seems unlikely. What was clear is that Ed not only wanted to have sex with his mother, he admired her so much and despised himself and his masculinity so greatly that he wanted to be her. Decades passed with little changing on the Gein family farm. Even the Great Depression and the tumultuous world events of the 1930s and 1940s seemed to make little dent in their existence. Both boys skirted conscription into the army in the Second World War. Never mind Hitler, the Gein boys were enslaved to another, more local tyrant. Yeah, it's one of those things, it's like, if you're like in the rural middle of nowhere in America during during the World War, it's really, other than potentially getting drafted, is it something that's really going to affect your life? I guess you could be like, wow, what if Hitler really gets it together and invades America, like in that Man in the High Castle show? But it's like, that's realistically not really possible, is it? It would be stretched far too thin. It's got to be just so removed from your reality. Like, I don't know, I think about famine sometimes, and it's just like so bizarre how there's just such crazy food inequality in the world. I mean, less so now than there was maybe in 10 or 20 years ago but it's still just like how far removed something that is a major crisis for some people is just un like just not a reality just a few thousand miles away it's just i don't know i i guess this is yeah i don't really know where i'm going with this but it's just strange 
how like something so major can be going on somewhere and it could just be so little effect somewhere else in 1940 at the age of 66 drunken sickly physically incapable and spiritually broken george Gein died having lived a miserable existence of his own making or at least partially through his alcoholism and his choice of wife henry Gein was 38 years old ed was 34. george's death came as a relief to the family he was utter he was an utter deadweight that did nothing to help the farm ed Gein, meanwhile took on a job as a local handyman to supplement the farm's income he began to gain a reputation in the community as a decent sort of fellow if a bit quiet and strange and he was generally tolerated and even liked by his neighbors unlike his acid-tongued hag of a mother who was universally hated in Plainfield. In addition to being a handyman, Ed was regularly conscripted to babysit. It turned out Ed was very good with kids. He'd play silly games, tell them stories derived from the books and magazines he'd read, and he'd buy them ice cream and candy. And before you say it, no, there's no report of paedophilia or child abuse having ever occurred. It so happened that Ed was good with kids because he was comfortable with them. They were innocent, unlike the adults his mother taught him to fear, and they were naive and sheltered just like he was. Ed's knack for dealing with children would have been heartwarming and admirable if it weren't a symptom of the fact that, as a man, his mother had left him deeply and irrevocably broken. Yeah, this is the thing. It's like, uh, I don't know. I don't even know what to add here other than it's really sad that it's just a man just totally broken by a person who's supposed to make him, not break him. Cain and Abel Henry Gein pushed back where Ed did not. In 1944, at the age of 42, Henry was still on the Gein family farm. He was a hard worker, a man's man. He socialized and had healthy adult relationships. Henry Gein also developed a deep and passionate bond with a divorced woman in Plainfield, which scandalized his mother, who pervaded Henry from seeing her. Nevertheless, it seemed likely that soon Henry would finally leave the farm and pursue happiness elsewhere. Yeah, about time. 42. Get the hell out of there, Henry. It's time to go, mate. Go and have a normal life, please. Meanwhile, Henry was deeply critical of Ed's close and fawning relationship with Augusta, which he told his brother was unnerving, perverted, and unnatural. Yeah, Henry is absolutely spot on. Henry was also increasingly critical of Augusta herself, whom he denounced as the abusive intolerance and fanatical harridan that she, in fact, was. These insults enraged Ed Gein beyond all human reason and comprehension. Not beyond all comprehension, we know why, because his mother basically bashed him in mentally into the point where the only relationship that he can think about having is with her because she's poisoned him against everyone else what is remarkable is just how ordinary and regular and level-headed henry seems to have turned out to be on May the 16th, 1944, Ed Gein suggested to his brother Henry that they burn out some dead grass next to some marshland on the Gein property in order to provoke some fresh vegetation to grow there. A fierce wind caused Ed's plan to go haywire, and the fire quickly got out of control and threatened to, threatened to consume a large part of the fields and even head towards the Gein household. And then Henry spent a considerable amount of time fighting back the flames. By the time the fire subsided, Henry Gein was no longer there. Ed Gein went to Plainfield to round up a sir. Oh no, he. No, no. To round up a search party, they found Henry Gein lying on a patch of burnt ground, dead. The coroner later declared the cause of death to be asphyxiation from the smoke. What was strange about the incident was Henry was lying on burnt ground, yet there was no evidence that the fire damaged either Henry's body or clothing, as if it had been moved to that place post-mortem. Furthermore, Henry had sustained severe blunt force trauma to the head, which the coroner speculated without evidence was caused by a rock when Henry collapsed to the ground. Finally, despite Ed's claims that he could not find his brother earlier, when the search party arrived, Ed led the crowd directly to where his brother Henry lay. Despite all of these suspicious circumstances, Plainfield law enforcement used to handling, handing 
giving out parking tickets and bouncing the local drunks, thought it too sensational and unthinkable that harmless Ed Gein would have murdered his much more masculine brother. Well, yeah, except he's got the huge advantage of the element of surprise because you don't expect to be murdered by your own brother. Did Ed Gein, did he really murder this guy because he was talking shit about his mum, who he loved so much? Oh my, poor, I, I, I was just saying how great Henry turned out. In retrospect, however, it seems quite clear that Ed Gein bashed his brother over the head, killing him. The fire was then deliberately set as a bit of theatre to explain Henry's demise. Very few... <laughs> that that Conor Abilet was murdered. Nah, he just bashed his head on a rock. Why is he not burned at all? Dunno. This is the, <laughs> it's like some country bumpkin coroner. Very few experts disagree with that assessment. However, what remains a mystery is whether Augusta Gein was aware of Ed Gein's actions, whether she approved of them, or whether Augusta had given the order herself. In later years, Ed Gein would show himself perfectly capable of murdering of his own volition. On the other hand, Henry's relationship with his mother and brother had grown increasingly strained in 1944, and it seems abundantly clear that if Augusta Gein had told her son Ed to do something, he would do it. Conversely, would Ed Gein have dared to murder his brother if it ran the risk of upsetting his mother? Not bloody likely. Yeah, but I think Ed Gein. No, I think I don't think Augusta ordered this. I just think Ed Gein did it because he didn't like how his brother was talking about their mum, and so he murdered him. And we know he's capable of murder. He doesn't need to be ordered to murder anyone. Six Sempiturnus. In the summer of 1944, Augusta Gein suddenly began complaining of headaches and started vomiting. For the first time in her life, she experienced difficulty speaking, and she claimed that she could not feel her left arm or left leg. Her condition worsened to the point that she lay in bed, unable to move. Ed Gein drove her to the hospital, where the doctors told him that Augusta had suffered a stroke. She had just turned 66 years old. Ed was devastated by the news and burst into tears. He spent all his time sitting next to her in hospital while she recovered. When Augusta's condition was stable enough for her to be discharged, Ed picked her up as tenderly as he would a baby bird, carried her to his truck, and he brought her back to the farm. Augusta was still weak, and movement was extremely difficult. Ed carried Augusta to her bedroom and laid her down on the bed. For weeks, Ed looked after Augusta's every need, only departing from her bedside when she instructed him what chores needed to be done on the farm. At night, he read to her from the Bible. A year went by. Then, in the summer of 1945, Augusta was finally capable of walking again. When Ed tried to assist her, she shoved him off. During the succeeding months, Augusta recuperated, and aside from significant weight loss, seemed to be back to her normal self. Ed was exceedingly relieved. Without the slightest fear of overstatement, Augusta was the center of his entire universe. Indeed, it appeared that Augusta was up to her old tricks. In December 1945, Ed went to the nearby Smith Livestock Farm to buy some straw for winter fodder. Augusta demanded that she go with her son in order to oversee the transaction, because she thought that Ed was generally too stupid to handle it himself. Ed carefully helped Augusta into the passenger seat of his truck and then drove off. When they pulled up the driveway, they saw a furious Mr. Smith beating a puppy to death with a stick. Oh my god. <laughs> what the f***? On the porch, dressed only in her pajamas, screaming at him to stop, was Smith's lover. The woman who lived with the livestock farmer was not married to him. Uh-oh, Augusta's not gonna like that. When the puppy was dead, whoa, jeez, man, come on. Mr. Smith threw the stick to the ground, and his lover ran up to him and pushed him out of the way before kneeling over the puppy's body, weeping loudly in grief. She turned and rattled a number of insults off at Mr. Smith for such a brutal act. He had no doubt. What the f*** are you up to, Smith? Augusta was scandalized by what she had witnessed. She later told her son as much. The idea, the very idea that a man like Mr. Smith would let a woman talk to him that way was unthinkable. Holy shit, Augusta. You have, this is f***ed up. He must be a very weak man indeed. He's a weak man. Definitely a bit of a piece of shit. But, uh, 
Not for not for the reason Augusta thinks. <laughs> Good Lord. Augusta said she always thought so. And what a debaucherous fool to live with a woman in sin. The disgusting pervert. As for the woman who Augusta only ever referred to as, quote, Smith's harlot, how dare she make such a public spectacle of herself? Isn't it bad enough that she disgraced herself as a wanton whore in front of the whole community by living with Smith? But she had to go on, ranting and raving in public in front of witnesses, wailing and moaning like a demented goat while in a state of undress. What sewer had Smith fished her out from i remember a guy <laughs> i what what was it harlot i didn't know what harlot meant i was like 13 or 14 at school and i remember looking it up because uh there was a kid in my drama class who had got expelled from his previous school or he had to leave his period they could ask you to leave i think was what schools would sometimes do he had got expelled from his previous school or something like that because it's called one of the teachers his daughter a harlot and i was like oh my god that must be really bad what's a harlot and i looked it up and i was like yeah you can't say that can you <laughs> i mean it must have done more than that because you don't get expelled for that one thing but uh wow that was how i first came across the word harlot fascinating story simon thank you as for the puppy augusta couldn't give a shit. A week later, Augusta suffered another stroke. Oh no! Ed rushed her to hospital, where she died aged 67 on December 29, 1945. Several of Augusta's brothers and sisters traveled from La Crosse for a funeral. Ed was there, barely, barely able to hold himself together, and according to a member of the Lurk family, he cried continuously the entire time, with tears and mucus running freely down his face. At times, he had trouble standing. Nobody, I mean literally nobody, attend, uh, from Plainfield attended Augusta's funeral. In the Mouth of Madness After his mother's death, Ed Gein stopped shaving regularly and stopped bathing. Around Plainfield, he became recognizable for his perpetual stubble, not as fashionable choice as it is today, and the overpowering smell of his body odor. Ed sold off all of his livestock. He stopped tending to the fields from which the forest began to reclaim. The front yard sported two-foot-high grass riddled with weeds. Farm equipment was left where it lay, rusting for years, unused since December 1945. Ed Gein supported himself by renting out a few of his acres to neighboring farms and working as a handyman. Aside from food and purchasing a new car, Ed's expenses were virtually non-existent. In general, Gein had a reputation for being a hard worker and thoroughly dependable. He was conscripted to look after the local kids. The men of Plainfield thought Gein was faintly ridiculous and timid, but and occasionally subjected him to a prank or made him the butt of a joke, but they were not terribly abusive. For the most part, they just respected him as a man who could be hired to do a job well. I have to say, though, if I'm having like, someone look after my kids and they show up at my house and they absolutely stink, I'd be like, I don't know what you're supposed to do in those situations. You're supposed to be like, you smell terrible. I mean, the answer is obviously no, right? You're just like, okay, we, we can't. I'm sorry, I have to let you go because uh, um, any other reason other than you smell bad? The women of Plainfield, in contrast, felt sorry for him. By and large, he was quiet, gentle, and unusually courteous towards them, even more so than their sons and husbands. Ed carried with him a sort of loneliness and sadness, which in another contest could have made him attractive. This did not translate into any romantic interest from women, though. He was too odd and too timid for that. But the women of Plainfield frequently took over their fresh baking, leftovers, and invited Ed Gein round for dinner. During the meal, he would not sit until everyone else was seated. He would listen attentively while the women talked, and after dinner, he would help the women take care of the dishes. Behavior like that was highly unusual for a man in Wisconsin in the 1940s and 1950s. He's got that, like, melancholic vibe. <laughs> Except he's weird. 
When he wasn't working on jobs or playing the wounded sparrow for the local women, Ed spent his time either shut up in his farmhouse, doing God knows what, or purchasing pulp crime thrillers, pop historical literature, and other adventure magazine and adventure magazines. Keen also regularly attended a local bar where he'd drink a beer or two, something unthinkable during his puritanical mother's lifetime. Nevertheless, Ed Gein missed his mother to a soul-crushing degree. Without her, his life was rudderless. His mind and body were decaying from the loss, and he would do anything, anything, to replace her. Oh God, what's he gonna do? Is this where we get into it? Because <laughs> it's gonna get, it's gonna get dark, guys. During the course of his history reading, Gein had recently become enamored with accounts of Nazi war atrocities. In particular, Gein was fascinated with two female figures, Irma Greece, the hyena of Auschwitz, and and Ilse Koch, the bitch of Buchenwald. Both women had committed acts of extreme sadism on thousands as they participated enthusiastically in the Holocaust. Between the ages of 19 and 22, Irma Gress, reputedly quite the stone-faced beauty, served as a concentration camp guard and selected women and children from the gas chamber. She was executed in December 1945. Ilse Koch was the wife of the Buchenwald camp commandant, and she committed numerous acts of torture and murder and harvested human skin for lampshades, furniture, and book bindings. Koch committed suicide in prison in 19. 67. Why Ed read so? How did she not get executed? What the f? Ilza Koch never was executed? That's disappointing. Why Ed read so much about these women and whether Ed felt they bore any resemblance to his mother is a matter of speculation. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's definitely like a little bit, right? On May the 1st, 1947, in Jefferson, Wisconsin, eight-year-old Georgia Weckler disappeared after being dropped off after school half a mile from the family's farmhouse. Two weeks of frantic searching involving hundreds of people in the local community turned up nothing. On the day of her disappearance, a Ford sedan, similar to the make and model Ed Gein drove, was witnessed speeding away from the scene. On the afternoon of the 1st of November 1952, deer hunters Victor Travis and Ray Burgess stopped off at Plainfield to drink at a local bar. They got drunk and left at 7 p.m. Neither Travis and Burgess nor the car they drove out of Plainfield on were ever found. The same bar was sometimes frequented by Ed Gein. <laughs> I like how, like, old-school America or just old-school everywhere, it's like, yeah, 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 they drove to a bar, got really drunk, and then left at around 7. By car? <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 they were just drunk, it's cool, no worries. Oh, my God. On October the 24th, 1953, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley was babysitting 20-month-old infant Janice Rasmussen. Rasmussen. She was last seen departing for the Rasmussen house at 6.30 in the evening. Evelyn's father became worried when she did not call to check in during the evening. He went to the Rasmussen's and knocked on the door. Nobody answered. Looking through the window, Hartley saw his daughter's glasses of one of her shoes in the middle of the living room floor. There were also signs of a struggle. Hartley spotted an open basement window with footprints and blood leading from it. Hartley found his daughter's second shoe in the apartment. The next-door neighbors claimed they heard the girl scream at around 7.15 p.m. Police determined that just down the road, the girl was bundled into a car. Scraps of her blood-stained clothing and a blood-stained pair of men's trousers were found further down the highway, hurled from the window of a vehicle heading east in the direction of Plainfield. On the afternoon of December the 8th, 1954, at a Plainfield bar, a regular customer entered to find the proprietor, Mary Hogan, was not there. The customer was alarmed by a large pool of blood on the floor. Hogan, who was a 200-pound woman who spoke with a German accent, 51 years old, who swore like a sailor, was twice divorced, and allegedly used to run a brothel in Chicago. Edgeen was often spotted at Hogan's bar, staring at the women. Some of Plainfield's residents even joked Gein had a crush on her. While completely different in character, the physical resemblance of Mary Hogan to Augusta Gein was unmistakable. Local sheriffs found a bullet casing next to the pool of blood and noted the blood trail leading out of the bar to the parking lot where the woman was loaded into a vehicle. I have to say, even though I am familiar with the story of Ed Gein, 
I didn't realize he killed so many people. I thought, unless I'm absolutely mixing him up with someone else, which is entirely possible that I am, I thought he was digging people up from the graveyards and doing weird shit with their bodies. And then he just killed one or two people. I must be confusing him with someone else because I don't remember him, like, doing all of this stuff. I must have got him confused with someone else because he's Ed Gein, right? He's a horrible monster. I mean, obviously he's a horrible monster if he's digging up graves and kills one person, but this is a different league of terrible to what Aya was thinking about. Shortly after Mary Hogan's disappearance, Elmo Yeek noted, joked with Ed Gein, quote, If you had spent more time courting Mary, she'd be cooking for you instead of missing. Gein replied with a sloppy, boyish grin, She's not missing. She's down at the house now. Gein would repeat this bizarre joke several more times whenever the disappearance of Mary Hogan came up in conversation. Between the years of 1947 and 1954, Ed Gein went to the local graveyard no less than 40 times and performed at least nine exhumations of recent burials, though he likely did more. Okay, I'm not confusing him with someone else. I just seem to have somehow missed out previously that he murdered a lot more people than I thought. Wow. On one of these nights, Ed Gein dug up a grave, opened the casket, and harvested the body parts that he desired. He then resealed the lid, reinterred the casket, patted down the soil with a shovel, and he left graves exactly as he found them, or as Gein would later describe it, in apple pie order. Gein, you weirdo. After 1954, the grave robbing, robbing ceased for the next three years at night. If one went to Ed Gein's farm just a few miles outside a plain field, one would be confronted with a startling sight. A man dressed in a skin suit composed of human body parts dancing in the yard. The suit resembled an old woman with tanned and stitched together flesh, complete with breasts and female genitalia. Oh, good lord. The grotesque figure was naked, a wig of long, dry, wiry, and untamed grey hair still attached to a leather-curled scalp jutting out from the top of the figure's head. And peering out from beneath a mask of skin ripped from a skull of a corpse were the eyes of a deranged killer. That is so f***ed up, man. What are you up to? <laughs> what are you doing? The Corpse Eater's Den uh, And then there's a Square brackets, major content warning. I mean, okay, if the guy wearing the skin suit didn't get a content warning, let's just say we're going to be in for a rough time, aren't we? So, if you're not into it, that's okay. You have been warned, you may depart. Here we go! We return to the night of November 16th, 1957. Once Deputy Sheriff Schley and Captain Show complicated namer had finished retching and vomiting outside Edgeen's barn. Ah, we're back to here. Okay, wow, that was a while ago. This is a long episode. The police captain went to his squad car and radioed the other officers that Bernice Warden's body had been found. They sat on the hood of the captain's car for a moment, collecting themselves. Both men lit cigarettes and smoked in silence. Then the two men headed back into the barn. What remained of Bernice Warden's body hung from her ankles. She had been butchered like wild game and left in the coldness of the barn to be preserved like a slab of meat in an industrial-sized freezer. The heads and other certain body parts were gone, and her insides had been scraped clean and washed. What the officers did not know at the time was that Ed Gein had done this in order to convert the body into another skin suit. It would be worn as if it were a onesie. <laughs> A team of sheriffs, state troopers, and forensic analysts arrived at the scene. All of them were shocked. None of them, in all their experience, had seen anything like this. But they should have girded their loins as they moved into the main farmhouse. The majority of the Gein household, including all of the upstairs and the majority of the ground floor, was boarded off. Ed had preserved those parts of the household to remain as if they were as they were when his mother had died 12 years earlier in 1945. 
Yeah, that's that's one of those signs, isn't it? It's like if someone's died in your life and you're preserving their room in all of its, you know, like perfectly as it exactly as it was many years later, probably time to uh, to talk to someone about that. The scrupulous placement of furniture and knickknacks remained. Only layers of dust and the odd rodent skittering across the floor gave any indication that a large amount of time had elapsed since Augusta Gein had last graced those once immaculate rooms. It soon became clear that Ed Gein inhabited only two parts of the house, the kitchen and his bedroom. The con- Their conditions were an entirely different story. Yeah, I didn't have rats. I got mice. I have a like uh, holiday house and I was staying there with my, my family over Christmas. And we were there for like six, five, six days. And there's there's mice in the attic, you know. It's a house in the country. There's there's mice in the attic. It happens. On the sixth day, the mice got brave. And they came downstairs and were in the bedrooms. Like, they, one was in my bedroom. One was in my wife be- wife's bedroom. And as I said earlier, we got two young kids. So we're like, I was like, let's just Google this to make sure, you know, mice don't carry dangerous diseases. And they're like, yeah, look, mice in the attic. It's a party life. I mean, maybe kill them, but... Uh, yeah, but mice in the bedroom at night, or if there are droppings around, is not safe around children. So we were like, all right, well, I guess a little holiday trip's cut short. So we leave, set some mouse traps, and I don't know, my parents set mouse traps when I was a kid, and I know they weren't very successful. And my my father-in-law was like, eh, mouse traps, you know, they're not going to work very well. We set eight of them. <laughs> Came back like a few days later, six of those had gone off, and there were dead mice in them. And I'm like, oh my god, that's nasty. <laughs> One of them spine was coming out. And you're like, ah, oh. oh. <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, so I went back last weekend and uh, there were less mice. Uh, I think uh, the two traps that were left had gone off and killed them. And now there are 13 traps. (laughs) There's a mouse genocide going on at my house. Fascinating tangent, Simon. Thank you. Let's get back to it. The first thing that struck the officers, uh, led by Captain Complicated Name, was the stench. An overpowering mixture of festering garbage, feces, and rotting flesh. A dozen members of the team had to periodically dash out of the house to be sick that night. Deputy Sheriff Arthur Schley was absolutely traumatized by the experience. Standing in the middle of the kitchen, one could detect a herd of rats scurrying along the countertops and around the corners of the rooms. It was not easy to see them by torchlight, especially because the kitchen was claustrophobic with mounds of trash and hoarded junk. The window to the kitchen was so covered with grime that barely any of the light from the policeman's lamps outside managed to shine through. Dude, it's not nice at all. A tremendous collection of empty cans of pork and beans, Ed's regular meal, had accumulated on the countertops and on the floor. Ed had evidently heated them up and ate them right out of the can. On the kitchen shelf, I mean, (laughs) that's not the worst thing. I've eaten stuff out of a can plenty of times, especially as a student, or like, you know, pot noodles or whatever, you know, directly out of the plastic thing. That's fine, but just throw them away afterwards. On the kitchen shelf was a coffee tin filled with hundreds of used pieces of gum, which Gene had been saving for some reason. Also on the shelf were three old radios, although the house had no electricity, a placard that said, in case of fire, call 505, although the house had no telephone, and a gas mask, a bunch of empty pill bottles belonging to Augusta, a container filled with cheap plastic toys found in children's breakfast cereals, and boxes of Cracker Jack, a rubber ball, a small basin filled with sand, two sets of dentures that Gene had liberated from the graveyard, oh my god, and three bowls made from women's skulls. What the? David, man, you took me down a trap. You took me all the way down there, didn't you? You're like, yeah, he was collecting children's toys and also skulls. He had bowls made from skulls. Dude. Ed had sawn off the tops of the skulls right at the temple, just above the eye sockets, to make bowls that hold to make bowls that hold as much volume as possible. He had then sanded down the rims of the bowls to make them smooth. Another one. Oh no, I just read ahead to see what that says. 
Another one of the bowls is on the kitchen table, which out Ed had recently eaten soup out of. Ed, that is so fucked up. What are you up to? The floor of the kitchen was festooned with scraps of rotting food and absolutely coated with rat shit. The officers picked their way through a hoarder's obstacle course of boxes filled with old magazines, a sack of plaster, several piles of ash, stacks of calendars ten years out of date, and tubs filled with broken crockery, rope, and clothing that belonged to Ed and Henry when they were both children. At the kitchen table, there were three chairs. Seat padding had replaced the old wicker weaving, and the padding was upholstered by human skin which had been tanned into leather. The undersides of the cushions were studded with white globs of human fat that had dripped and congealed during the crude leather-making process. Oh my god. I had that... This I'm not going to be sick, but you know where you get that just like in the throat, like, you know, that... The way you... You know when you're going to be sick and then your mouth waters for some reason beforehand? I just had a little bit of that because that is properly rough. The only thing that is comforting me, if possible right now is that I'm fairly sure he made this out of people who were already dead. Although, then he murdered people as well, apparently. Which is makes it so much worse. Like, I was like always with the Ed Gein thing. In my mind, going into this, I was like, well, at least, he did, at least it was just dead bodies, which, I mean, is horrible. But at least he didn't murder them and then use their skin to make chairs. Decorating the walls of the kitchen was a horseshoe hanging from a nail, a pair of deer antlers, and a Christmas wreath that had long since died, become brittle, and was covered with cobwebs. At a pile beside the kitchen door was a robe made of horsehide. Deputy Arnie Fritz gave it a kick and a cursory glance and noticed that it was covering a small paper bag. Pointing his flashlight inside the bag, he saw a lump of hair and desiccated skin. In a daze, Arnie Fitch re- Fritz reached into the bag, pulled out the object, and held it up and unfurled it by torchlight. Mate, what are you up to? I'd be like, whatever the 1950s equivalent of... C- 1940s? 1940s? 50s? Whatever. Uh, equivalent of CSI is... I mean, let's wait for those guys with the gloves and strong stomachs. By God, one of the officers said, that's Mary Hogan. Indeed, it was the face of the sassy, tough-talking bar owner who had disappeared in 1954. Her face had been preserved and transformed into a grisly, ghoulish mask for Ed Gein to wear. Never mind, never, never mind. My comfort from it just being dead bodies is now gone. He murdered her and turned her into a mask. I don't even know what to say. That is so... Yeah, whatever. I mean... Okay. Among the endless piles of junk and trash in the kitchen, police found a lampshade that was made from the skin of a human face. Taking direct inspiration from Ilse Koch at the Buchenwald, the skin had been cured and stretched out using a thin metal wire to make a conical shape. Closed eyelids, a flattened nose, and sealed lips could still be made out on its front side. Also among the maze of boxes and metal tubs, police discovered that Gein had used scraps of human skin to make leather bracelets, a holster for a large hunting knife, a waste paper basket scaffolded by wire, and a small drum made from skin pulled so tightly across a wooden base that it made a reverberating thumping noise. Moving into Ed Gein's bedroom, one was confronted by a bare, moldy, yellow-stained mattress and a clot of threadbare sheets lumped at the end of it. Next to the mattress was a stove, which Gein kept warm and which he used to make various midnight snacks. Debris at the scene indicated that some of those snacks were char- No, my dude, he's eating their organs. Oh, my good lord. Over Gein's bed was a clothesline from which had hung a series of soiled handkerchiefs. On a crate next to his bed was another bowl made out of a skull, which Ed Gein appeared to have used as a piss pot. Oh my god. Next to that was a pile of several dozen books. Across the bed was a rocking chair. Again, you can guess what it's made out of. 
On the floor, one could find more food tins, empty juice and milk cartons, more rotten bits of meat and carrion, more rats and a lot more sh**. As one moved across the room, one inevitably disturbed the carpet of filth, nudging a rotten lamp with one's foot or kicking up a cloud of green mold. Occasionally, officers set off a blast of stench that temporarily stunned the men with its noxious strength, while others had to make a rapid exit. Along the wall was a broken accordion, a violin without strings, two rifles, a 22 caliber pistol, a German Mauser, and a shotgun. Unlike the rest of Gein's possessions, the firearms were all cleaned, oiled, and well-maintained. The bedposts flanking Ed Gein's mattress were decorated with complete human skulls, fixed there with a couple of knots of twine, and a nail hammered through the back of the skulls, where the occipital lobe of the brain would have been. What? This is like the proper house of horrors, Gein. What the f***? In addition to a pile of Gein's unwashed everyday clothing, police found several other personal effects. They found a belt with an ornate brass buckle, the strap of which was constructed from 15 leather-pressed female nipples stitched together by the edges of their areolas. Gein had also crafted a small handle that would be used to pull down a set of blinds, which had decorated with a pair of human lips. Near midnight, a motorized generator arrived, and Gein's house was lined with floodlights, so the officers no longer had to walk through the gruesome scene only by torchlight. The Chamber of Horrors was lit up like a Christmas tree, which allowed crime scene investigators to make a more thorough, methodical excavation of the two rooms. Lab analyst Alan Wilomsky found a box that contained a bunch of stuff, which I'm not going to describe, but uh, let your imagination go wild, because that's what he found. Two such remains were determined to have belonged to, let's just move on, but let's say he did murder those people, um, and they were young. Another shoebox contained... Okay, look. They found a bunch of boxes with horrible body parts from people that he killed. Let's move on. I, I can't stomach it. I don't want you to have to, to have that. The excavation of Gein's house took until 5 in the morning on November the 17th, 1957. This is why some sources list the date of Bernice Warden's murder and Gein's arrest on the 17th rather than the 16th, or else imply police waited an entire day after arresting Gein before searching his house. In truth, the whole horrific affair unfolded in just 21 hours. Ed Gein claimed to have performed only nine exhumations between 1947 and 1954, and only two murders have been definitively linked to him, that of Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. But the number of human body parts found at the scene strongly imply that Gein committed far more grave robberies and or was responsible for large numbers of murders. Unfortunately, because of the ethics of the time, the grisly evidence was photographed and then quickly disposed of, preventing further forensic investigation in later years. Nevertheless, it seems clear that Gein could have murdered six to eight victims, including the likely murder of his brother Henry, and raided as many as two dozen graves. Yeah, I think that's it. I had no idea so many murders were ascribed to him. I think I remember there being... I there was one ascribed to him i have to say at the beginning i didn't quite give that away uh but there are definitely two and then his brother and then also those people went missing and his car was seen nearby it's a damn shame they didn't keep like uh tissue samples because i guess they didn't know but i get i wonder what the next thing that we're getting rid of now and then it'll be like well we should have kept that because there's some magical new technology that now allows us to like use this as evidence i don't think it'll be anything particular right i feel like we're got a fairly good grip on it these days but uh that could be that that that's a shame it's a shame they weren't able to 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 go back and tie those things together as reporters and onlookers gathered in front of Gein's house on the early hours of the 17th, they were told only that Bernice Warden's body had been found and nothing more. Yet from the number of men at the scene, the tireless hours they worked, and indeed the number of them who became physically ill over the duration of the night, it was clear to reporters and onlookers that something more had occurred. At one point in the night, a clearly shaken Deputy Sheriff Arthur Schley simply said to reporters, quote, 
It is too horrible. Horrible beyond belief. And he refused to say another word. Trial and Death During the night of the 16th and 17th, Ed Gein spent his time in a jail cell in the Watoma Courthouse, still not having confessed to any of his crimes. At 2.30 a.m., Sheriff Schley burst into his cell and slammed Gein up against the wall, smashing his face into the bricks, demanding to know what the man had done. Schley had to be pulled off Gein with some difficulty by three other men. Still, Gein would not confess to a single thing. The next day, police formally interrogated Gein for 12 hours, and Gein did not have a lawyer present, nor was he informed that he had a right to one. Nevertheless, Gein refused to admit to any wrongdoing. After another 24 hours would pass before Ed Gein finally admitted to the murders of Bernice Warden, claiming that he did not remember anything because he had blacked out at the time of the murder. Gein denied murdering anyone else and claimed that the other female body parts came entirely from grave robbing. At the very least, in regard to Mary Hogan, we now know that that was a lie. Later that day, Gein was driven out to his farm so he could indicate where he had disposed of Bernice Warden's remaining blood after collecting it with a bucket. A gaggle of journalists followed Gein and snapped a few photos. In one of the photographs now famous, his usual daydreaming expression was replaced with a sinister and ghoulish grin. Two days later, Green was transported to Madison, Wisconsin, where he was interrogated for nine hours. I have been to Wisconsin. I've been to Madison. There we go. That answers my question earlier in the episode. Okay. Great work. During this investigation, Gein gave details of his grave robberies, his fashioning of costumes out of human remains, and vaguely alluding to dressing up as a woman. He was much cagier about admitting to any murders. He had already admitted to murdering Bernice Warden in a daze, and confronted with the evidence of Mary Hogan's face and skull, Gein finally admitted to her murder as well. However, he insisted he had no memory of Mary Hogan's murder either, and claimed that he was admitting to the crime because that is what interrogators wanted him to do. Ed Gein's reluctance to bear full responsibility for the murders and focus on grave robbing led to some led to some police to suspect Gein was not as crazy as he seems. That is to say, he had the mental competence to recognize that grave robbing and desecration of multiple corpses, although revolting in nature, was less severe a criminal offense than admitting to additional murders. The Plainfield gravekeeper and a local mortician were both of the opinion that it seems unlikely that Gein was a grave robber. The gravekeeper claims that he kept a close eye on the graves during the period in question due to some vandals causing a large amount of damage to some headstones in 1947. He said that the graves showed no signs of disturbance between 1947 and 1954. A local mortician said while it is possible that Gein could have forced open a casket, harvested human remains, and then replaced everything over the course of one night, that some of the times during which Gein claimed to have gone grave robbing were in the middle of winter and the grounds would have been frozen too hard to carry out an exhumation wait can't they just exhume the graves and find out naturally if gein hadn't collected the body parts from graves that opened the question of whom else gein would have murdered during that period that question was never fully resolved okay Oh, meanwhile, police exhumed numerous caskets in the Plainfield graveyard and found that indeed at least two graves had been disturbed and the bodies mutilated. Well, there we go. <laughs> the gravekeeper wasn't doing such a brilliant job, was he? Police refused to dig up any more to avoid causing grief to the families concerned because as far as police were concerned, the evidence of even a couple of disturbed graves was enough to verify Gein's story. Yeah, I mean, what, they just dig two and they both happen to be exactly as he says and he said he did more? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I believe him. Today, most people accept the grave robbing story while allowing that Gein may have murdered more than two victims. Yeah, I think that seems like a pretty reasonable conclusion. We don't know he killed more than two people, it seems likely, but he definitely robbed graves and did all sorts of weird sh**. On November the 21st, Gein was arraigned on just one count of murder, that of Bernice Warden, for which he pled not guilty 
by reason of insanity. A month later, after psychologists gave Gein a diagnosis of schizophrenia, he was declared not competent enough to stand trial and packed off to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. During his psychological examination, Gein laid blame on the 1945 incident where his mother witnessed Smith beating a puppy to death, which Gein claimed caused his mother's second stroke, which killed her. The Madison Capital Times ran with the headline, Gein diagnoses his own case, blames dog. The next several weeks were predictably one of media frenzy, during which a local Plainfield woman falsely claimed that she had carried on a 20-year affair with Gein, and during which police made contradictory statements to the press about whether or not Gein had robbed a single grave to collect body parts. Press attention became all the more intense and stupefied when it came out that Gein had been harvesting body parts to dress up as his deceased mother, with whom he had developed an unnatural obsession. When journalists asked police whether Gein had tried to exhume the body of his mother, police stated that Gein had denied doing such a thing and at any rate, Augusta Gein's casket was, casket was covered with a concrete slab, which would have made exhumation much more difficult. Yeah, at this point, Gein doesn't seem to be lying about very much. Although it does seem he was definitely murdering more people, but that makes sense for him to lie about. But the exhumation of the bodies, I don't think there's really a reason for him to lie about that, because then they say it wasn't really a crime or something. They didn't, or they didn't decide to like push charge. Oh, it's definitely a crime, obviously, but they didn't decide to pursue it or something because they had the murder charge. Um... So at that point, you'd be kind of like, yeah, yeah, because it makes him sound more crazy. So I, I think he didn't dig up his mother, and he's also like got a weird obsession with her, so I don't think he'd desecrate her corpse. During his interviews with psychologists, Green confirmed that his mother's death had taken a mental toll on him and affirmed that he shared his mother's opinion that most women were unclean temptresses who should be avoided at all costs. Gein claimed that he regularly heard his mother's voice in his head after her death, started smelling rotten flesh everywhere he went and, start, went and started seeing people's faces in leaves upon the grounds. Well, I mean, one of the, we know why there was the smell of flesh everywhere, my dude. It's because there was rotting flesh everywhere. What the hell? Gein had killed engraved Rob in order to fashion several costumes, which he could replace or even become his mother with. At the same time, Gein brutalized women's bodies because he believed his mother's teaching that most women were sinful creatures. This dehumanized his victims to the extent that he could commit such appalling acts of murder and mutilation. Ed Gein's farmhouse and possessions, obviously not counting those admitted as police evidence, were scheduled for auction on the 30th of March 1958. Ten days before auction, on March the 20th, the house and all of its contents were burned to the ground. Suspicions were that the fire had been deliberately set either by angry townsfolk or traumatized police officers in order to prevent the place from becoming a shrine to a monster. An exact cause of the fire was never determined. Ed Gein's 1949 maroon Ford sedan was purchased by a carnival ringmaster, Bunny Gibbons, who charged people 25 cents in order to see it. Numerous special interest groups demanded that this sideshow be stopped when a local sheriff shut down the exhibit at a county fair in Slinger, Wisconsin, and the state government banned its exhibit later that year. Then the car was never seen again. Ed Gein was declared fit enough to stand trial for the murder of Bernice Warden in November 1968. That kind of surprises me. I just assumed he'd be in the insane asylum forever. I guess they, I mean, they're going to murder him? They're going to kill him? Maybe. He was not brought to trial for any other murder for the grave or for the grave robbing due to, quote, prohibitive costs. During his trial, that's a weird one. It doesn't normally stop people getting prosecuted for horrific crimes. During his trial, Gein repeated his claim that he had blacked out during the murder and that the last thing he remembered was trying out the rifle Bernie's warden had handed to him, loaded a bu loading a bullet into the chamber, and then it had gone off accidentally. Given the methodical way Gein had disposed of the body thereafter and his long history of system systemically butchering either murder victims or disinterred bodies, it's likely that his claim is nowhere near the truth. 
Nevertheless, in a trial without a jury, the judge found that Gein was not guilty by reason of insanity and recommitted him to the insane asylum. Okay, Gein died at... There we go. He did die at the insane asylum. He died at Mendota Mental Health Institute on the 26th of July, 1984, aged 77. He was buried in Plainfield Cemetery alongside his father, brother, and dear beloved mother. Really? They buried him at the same cemetery where he was grave robbing? That's kind of fucked up to the people buried in that cemetery, guys. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. Sheriff Arthur Schley was so traumatized by what he saw in Ed Gein's house that he never fully recovered. Shortly after Schley was due to give evidence at Ed Gein's trial in 1968, he died of heart failure. One of his friends insisted that Gein was responsible for his murder. Number 2. Ed Gein's case inspired Robert Bloch's 1959 novel Psycho, which Alfred Hitchcock made into a movie the following year. Gein also inspired aspects of the movie Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974, Silence of the Lambs in 1991. Gein also inspired numerous grindhouse and low-budget horror movies over the years and a number of biopics, most of which are pretty awful. Gein's story was also adapted into a few stage plays and an off-Broadway musical. Pfft, really? Really? That's not very tasteful, guys. Gein differs from the villain of Psycho, Norman Bates, in that the latter only wore his mother's clothing rather than fashioning a suit out of her skin. Leatherface, the villain of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, did wear human skin, but the film's plot resembles very little of Gein's story. Finally, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs kills his victims in order to fashion a skin suit in order to become a woman, but becoming an orphan at a young age, his childhood and life bears little resemblance to Gein's. Number 3. Gein's case is frequently highlighted by criminologists and psychologists to the point uh, to point out that sexual repression could be just as damaging to a child and young adult as outright abuse. Number four, a frequent criticism of much of the media inspired by Gein's case, particularly Psycho and Silence of the Lambs, is that it promotes transphobia, where people with gender dysphoria are equated with deranged killers. Uh, no, deranged they are deranged killers because they kill people and made suits out of their skin. Um, that is a weird take, guys. However, concerning Gein's case itself, no mental health expert, past or present, has ever claimed that Gein had gender dysphoria. Rather than wanting to transition to being a woman in his own right, Gein's obsession rested entirely with becoming one woman, specifically his mother, whom he adored above all other people, while generally despising what the average woman represented to his repressed and puritanical mind. Number 5. While Gein's kill count is nowhere close to the world's most prolific serial killers, only being confirmed to have murdered two victims, Gein's immense cultural impact can be explained by the gruesome discoveries made in Gein's house and his twisted but intriguing relationship with his mother. Yeah, Gein is one of those, it's like, the, most of the other people you see, you know, when you think of, like, the way I like to find, you know, consider it, is if you search Ed Gein, and you see people also searched for, they'll be like, Ted Bundy and co. Uh, Ed Gein is not, he's not got the numbers up there. He's not got. He's like more famous than uh, Harold Shipman for sure. And Shipman killed like two hundred something people. It's a big difference. Finally, Gein was immortalized due to the shocking discovery of his crimes in a small hamlet in the 1950s that was quickly snapped up by an author and a filmmaker in the immediate aftermath of his crimes. If it were not for the creativity of Block and Hitchcock, it is likely Gein's story would have faded alongside similar cases of necrophiles, cannibals, and murderers, of which there are a substantial number with tales just as grisly and depraved as the one that we've uttered today. Far from being unusual, these are elements of Gein's crimes that have been replayed dozens of times throughout modern criminal history. And uh, sometimes we touch on them on the Casual Criminalist because it's sort of what we do here. Well, that was a disgusting episode. Um, I, I guess the only thing is Gein didn't kill that many people, which is hardly a reprieve, is it? 
um it was horror and also another reprieve that we didn't really mention is i don't want to even say it but at least they were dead first it's like we've had ones where it's like people have been all sorts of horrible stuff's happened to them while they're still alive at least they were dead first i'm i'm kind of surprised uh, it's a house of horrors story more than a serial killer story today anyway i hope you i don't <laughs> did you enjoy today's episode no of course you didn't it was horrible um if you find this podcast interesting if you do enjoy the podcast itself as a piece of media uh please if you're watching on youtube there's a like button below there's a subscribe button you are free to utilize if you're watching as a podcast spotify hey hey now has uh reviews or ratings that you can give the show five stars preferred of course just give it whatever you want though and uh apple podcasts all the usual suspects have uh ratings and review systems so leaving that would be grand and as always i'll see you next time